The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Special welcome to anybody who's here for the first time tonight. Jean is our practice li- or program host, rather, in the corner. So if you have questions, feel free to check in with Jean afterward or come up and talk to me. And uh, for those who are new also, we've been, uh, some people are using this text as a complimentary resource to the talks that I've been giving the last few months and probably for another month or so. And you can get this online for free, Meditation, A Way of Awakening by Ajahn Sushito. Ajahn Sushito is a British Buddhist monk, so that's his monastic name. Ajahn just means teacher in the Thai tradition. Um, and the link, if you go to Kamagon's website, you look under blog, a few blog entries back, you'll see the link for this. Or you could just Google the title of the book and you'll get the place online where you can download a digital copy for free. Meditation, A Way of Awakening. And then his name is Suchito, S-U-C-I-T-T-O. And so for those who are following along, we're now at 172, and this is the topic of karma. And uh, it's one of these words in English, or in the West, rather, that you don't have to translate, except that everyone thinks they know what karma means, but doesn't mean they understand it correctly. It's, it has a lot of baggage, as, as do a lot of the Buddhist terms that have been around, like dharma, even you know, mindfulness which isn't a foreign word, but still can be a confused idea of what that is, what practice is about. So for the next couple of weeks, I'll talk about karma. And uh, the thing is, we can't really go ahead, even not even as a meditator, but just as a human being who wants to be a little, gradually a little wiser, a little more skillful, more loving, without understanding karma. But you don't need to know the word karma, or even have a concept to be understanding karma. Because it really means understanding that this, that life, that experience, is a conditional or lawful activity. Sometimes karma is called the law. But actually the more specific definition for karma just means action, or in particular, intentional action. So when there's that force in the mind that I intend to, I want to say this, I want to do this, I want to think this through. So whether it's words or just thought or action, we're actually acting out in the world, doing something in the world. To the degree that there's intention, because some of our thoughts, some of our words we speak, some of our actions, there's not a lot of intention behind it. It was sort of like, we got swept away, but we weren't doing it intentionally. Or the intention wasn't so much to do it. The intention that was going on in the mind, going on in the mind was it doesn't matter, right? So that allowed us to do whatever we got swept away doing. But <clears throat> it's the intention that leaves an impression in the mind. And you can see this. This is not rocket science. Like I mentioned in the guided meditation, if we've spent part of the sit tonight worrying about something or planning something or judging somebody or hating ourselves or you know any of the 
typical things that you know we do because of the habits of our mind. And then if at some point in the middle of that drama, spinning away in that drama, if at some point the mind came into balance and there was that clear present moment awareness, what we call mindful awareness, then that mental activity might cease relatively quickly because of the balance and clarity in the mind. But what will be left is the karmic fruit of having been worrying or planning or judging or hating. Or, right? It will feel like something. Like You'll literally feel what's left over, the residual of that activity. Just like at the end of a really crazy day, you know, and you sit in your bed and you're ready to go to bed, what do you feel? You feel what's left over. If you've been a jerk all day and you have the wherewithal to be sensitive, to be awake at the end of the day, you're going to feel something. If you've been, generally speaking, really skillful that day, acting out of qualities of mind like compassion and patience and kindness and just various <clears throat> expressions of a tender sensitive heart, then at the end of the day when you check in, how's it going to feel? Well, it'll be, there will be a sweet taste like, well, that turned out okay. Looking back on the day, it's a nice feeling like, oh yeah, I can live with that. I appreciate that I navigated, that life was navigated so skillfully today. That leaves a good taste. Not that you'd actually say those words in your mind, but that would be sort of the understanding that would arise, like that felt good. Basically what we're noticing in Buddhism, we'd call that the bliss of blamelessness. But it's interesting how often in the way the Buddha taught, it's more about what's not there. So at that moment, what's not there is regret. You know, you're looking over the day and you realize, there's no regret. There's nothing unfinished. You know how it is, like when there is regret, we're sort of like, oh yeah, okay. And then you remember something you said or did. Oh, I did that. I can't believe I said that. And the whole energetic system, there's a crunch, right? That's the karmic fruit of having done, lived, said, thought, whatever we did earlier in the day or earlier in our life. So, you know, the force of karma, the force of intention, like how it leaves an imprint, like how we're seeing, experiencing our, experiencing our world right now, the attitude that we have, the way we perceive things, the way it is right now, this is the expression of that conditional, lawful unfolding. When the past was like it was, this is what we get. on all levels, national level, political level, like when the past is like it, it was, we get this. Same with our heart and mind. When our mind has been involved thinking, doing, reacting, being the way that it's been, then the conditional lawful expression of all of that from the past is the mind that I have, the mind I'm experiencing right now. Where else would this mind, this attitude, these dispositions come from? 
if not from the natural, lawful unfolding of whatever was set in motion in the past. And this is what we would consider, in, you know, in terms of how the Buddha taught, this is the beginning of wisdom. When, as a human being, we begin to sense more and more the conditional nature, in particular the conditional nature of our own mind. Because, it, you see, it makes us feel responsible. Oh, it matters. It matters what my mind is doing. It ma- the intentions that I'm living with, moment by moment, they matter because they, even if somehow they don't affect those around me, in my own mind, like my partner, my spouse, even if she doesn't know what I'm thinking, right? Even if she doesn't pick up, she's not intuitive enough, she's not paying attention, and I'm there stewing or reacting or judging or loving her unconditionally. So whatever it might be, in my mind it leaves an impression. It doesn't matter if I don't get caught or if nobody else knows about it, because that intentional thinking or acting immediately makes an impression of my own mind stream. And that's a better way to talk about the mind as a stream or as a unfolding. So if you think something despicable, do something despicable, say something despicable, or you can put it in the positive, think something wonderful, peaceful, or skillful, then the next moment, you're living, in a sense, out of a mind that did that, that thing the moment before, right? So the mind you're living with in this moment, the mind you're, in a sense, living out of in this moment, has been conditioned by the mind that thought that or did that or said that. Does that make sense? So the mind we're living out of right now, and in Buddhism we sometimes talk about it, mind, 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 mind. And each moment of our existence, of anybody's existence, is a mind. And that mind arises, and then it ceases. And in that arising, it conditions the next moment of mind, which conditions the next moment of mind. So this is what we call continuity. It's just basically saying cause and effect, but it's describing it in a more microscopic way, how each moment of your heart, mind, whatever you want to call this sense of being, right, is arising moment by moment and is conditioning the next arising of your mind, your heart, the way it is, the way being is for you. Does that make sense? And so it's a, it seems initially like a deterministic, well, where's free will or how do we, how can we be skillful in this? Well, we can't really affect what's showing up in this moment because it's showing up. You know, the external conditions, the internal conditions like my attitude and whatever dispositions, personality tendencies are showing up right now. I can't really, like, choose. Do you get to choose the attitude you have in any moment? You might think you do, but it's already there. But what we do, in a sense, choose, or what we're, we and like Buddhist terms, create karma, where karma set emotion is, well, what am I, how am I relating to what's showing up right now? 
That's the karmic act. It matters what the mind's doing, what I'm paying attention to, how my mind is paying attention, what qualities of mind are getting reinforced right now. It matters. I can't really snap my finger and change what's showing up, but in any moment, isn't it true that in any moment, how I'm understanding, how I'm relating is in play, right? Like we could be sitting here right now, dwelling, intentionally dwelling on, I never get what he's saying. I must be stupid. <laughs> or maybe Buddhism is stupid. No, I'm stupid. No, Buddhism. Right? So we could be caught in doubt, right? And identified with being the one who doesn't know. Am I stupid or is Buddhism stupid? Me, Buddhism. <laughs> and spinning that way. And then we could, we could sort of have a moment of waking up and we realize, well, it matters. Like, I, it matters what I'm doing with my mind. Like one possibility in understanding that it matters is, well, maybe I could suspend the question of whether I'm stupid or Buddhism stupid. And I could continue to pay attention with an open mind. I don't really know. I could be stupid. Buddhism could be stupid. But it might make more sense just to pay attention and maybe it will get clearer, <laughs> right? As the talk goes on or my life goes on, I might get clearer about what it is. Now that might be a lot more skillful to just listen and try to understand as best I can than to obsessively try to figure out Buddhism stupid or am I stupid? Right? And this is like so much of how we spend our time. We don't, we don't actually have that sort of stepping back or that opening up and realizing, well, it matters how I hold this moment, how I frame it, how I understand it. It matters. We don't realize that it's going to happen on autopilot and it will set things in motion like there's no excuse why well, I didn't intentionally exclude you. I didn't intentionally throw you out of my heart. But where, where, like I mentioned before, the, what the intention was, was like, I don't need to pay attention here. Well, that's an intention. Like thinking it doesn't matter, not being clear, not being clearly aware, it doesn't matter, this moment doesn't matter enough to be clearly aware. That might seem like an unconscious thing, but you're intentionally living with that view. I don't really need to pay attention now. I don't need to be sensitive. I don't need to care about these people or care about this part of my life. I don't need to be attentive. In Buddhist terms, we'd call that delusion. Thinking that we don't need to be present is delusion. And delusion is a karmic act, meaning it sets something in motion. The more we have moments in our day where whether we're aware of it or not, the intention of the mind is, I don't really have to show up here. I don't really have to be intimate here. Then what's the karmic fruit of that? What's the consequence of that? We'll be more likely to be justifying distraction, denial, disconnection, not being aware. Right? It becomes the habit of the mind because it's getting practiced. 
So this is a really interesting thing about the, the path of awakening, you know, just being a more awake, wiser, kinder, more engaged, more skillful human being, is that, uh, you know, in the system, the ends and the means need to be in alignment. So if we want to be more peaceful, if we want to be more clear, if we want to see more deeply what's at play in the moment, what's moving here, what's happening here, well, then we practice doing that in this moment. And if you look at the early teachings of the Buddha, you know, he made... He didn't really uh, make the wise person, the awakened, enlightened person, he didn't make them sort of extraordinary. They were sort of talked about in, in these terms, like this is somebody who is able to be peaceful with the conditions that are showing up for them. You know, it doesn't sound like the radiant, all-seeing, omniscient Buddha, you know, who reads minds or can do miracles. I mean, a lot of that stuff, not just in Buddhism, but gets added in over the centuries, sort of in this unavoidable competition that my God's bigger than your God or my teacher's more powerful, better, right? So we sort of, in institutional systems, they just sort of add on. But when you look, when the academics and people who really understand the text, the ancient text, when they really tease out the extras and really get back to this person that lived a while back and had some deep insights, he really talked about the wise, the wisdom that arises, the sage, as somebody who practices and expresses being at peace with the different conditions that come and go. Right? So that's the intention in the mind, to be at ease, to be peaceful, not as a kind of passivity, but actually a way of allowing a more full engagement. So instead of any kind of resistance or disconnection, or if only, then I'd be willing to be in the moment, sort of greed or wanting things to be other than they are, there's a sense of peace allows us to really be intimate, being at ease. And then that intimacy, it's like having roots into the moment. We feel, we see, we understand. And so our response, what we say, what we do, the kind of karma, uh, karmic action, is going to set something beautiful in motion precisely because the heart, the mind, is intimate, it's present. When you think about times in your life where you were able to be really skillful, right? bring something to mind, those times when we said the right thing, did the right thing, refrained from doing the wrong thing. Those times when we were skillful often arose, that skill often arose because the mind or the heart was present, was sensitive. We, not when we have an agenda. I mean, generally when we have a fixed view, it may seem to work initially, but pretty soon 
it stops working. But if because we're fixed, we just keep plowing ahead. No, no, this is the way. This is what I believe. So instead, like think about tricky places in your life, maybe a relationship at work, maybe your partner, maybe something with the kids or a job situation. And imagine like in this very wholesome desire to want to be skillful, not to create harm for yourself or another, but instead of like looking for a fixed idea, how you, how you can handle this, what's the right way, instead approach it as like the karmic act is to be sensitive, which means humility. This is such an important telltale sign of whether we're deepening our practice, becoming a wiser person, is are we able to embody humility in a more regular way, knowing that we don't know? Because when we know deeply that we don't know, what do we do? We show up with much more integrity, more sensitivity. And it's, we might think initially that's a kind of weakness, you know, knowing that we don't know. Well, people are just going to take advantage of me. But remember, there's a lot of certainty in knowing that we don't know. Like We can be certain that we know that we don't know. And the other powerful thing is we can be certain that other people know. Uh, they may think they know, but we can be certain that they don't know either, that nobody really knows. And the way to sort of skillfully navigate life isn't to know with certainty, but with this humility to be really sensitive. And to let our response, what we say or don't say or do or don't do, let it come not from some idea that I know what to do, but rather from this sensitive, exposed, humble place. Imagine like some of you have teenagers or some of you I know are doctors or training to be doctors or some of you are therapists or business people. You know, we all have our own sticky places where how to be skillful, what the skillful way forward is, is not clear to us. So just imagine first and then try it out, actually try it out. Inhabiting that place of humility and openness and sensitivity and really being okay not knowing, like not in a hurry, like, okay, I'll be humble as a means to know. No, no. It's like, because even if we, in a moment, you know, there's this wonderful, clear flash of intuition, I'm going to say this to that person. I'm going to do this. I'm going to hold back in this way. Immediately, there's going to be the next moment where we'll have to know that we don't know. Well, now that we've done that, and yeah, that seems like, it seems like it's working okay, but I don't know what's next. So we have to immediately go back to that place. So in terms of karma, you know, be, see, karma is sort of two-edged. When we realize that how we are showing up, what we're paying attention to, how the mind is responding, what emotions, what qualities of mind are informing, when we realize how that matters, it can trigger like really wanting to do it right, which is actually skillful. Like to want to be skillful is skillful. To want to be kind, 
to not want to set emotion suffering, that's skillful. But to think the way to be skillful involves getting tight or trying hard or having a fixed idea, that's the wrong direction. It's just the opposite. Like even in terms of something you know relatively personal, like you sit down and meditate, it's very easy to sort of come to it like, I'm, I've been told what the meditation instructions are, I'm just going to do it. And it's okay to do it that way, but you might just experiment being really humble, like, okay, I know there's a mind here. You sit down, you compose your body, sitting in a relatively comfortable way. You've got your cell phone, your little insight meditation timer app, <laughs> dings, and it's such a beautiful way. You can even see who else is practicing. Even now, somebody, I don't know who did, set up the common ground. So you can even see how many common ground people are meditating at that time, as well as how many people around the world are meditating, you know, using the app. So it's kind of sweet in that way. But anyway, you got, so you got that. And then just to take some time, like, okay, so I know there's a, you know, a mind here or a heart here. It feels like this. And I know that you know, the purpose, the reason I'm sitting down has something to do with peace, being at ease, being in the moment, being sensitive in the moment. So instead of imposing a strategy, you could just like, explore, almost, almost like trial and error. Well, I'll breathe in and I'll feel the breath coming in. Like, it's not like you try to forget everything you've learned from your own practice or from reading or hearing instructions, but you're not imposing that on your experience. You're really taking moving into it in a very a fresh way. You can't help but learn when we do it that way. The worst thing in life, whether it's making love or navigating, raising kids or doing meditation practice, is to do it on autopilot. Like, you think you know, so now I don't have to pay attention. I tell you, this is a real shadow among meditators where they've got their routine, they sit every day, they do their retreats once a year, a couple times a year, but they do their practice on automatic pilot. They're not really learning. And that doesn't mean they're not getting some calm from their practice, but getting some calm is just one part of our meditation practice and, and ultimately a relatively minor part. The most important part is to learn something about the mind. And being in that more humble, fresh place where we're basically tracking karma, cause and effect. Oh, I'm relating this way. The mind got distracted and chewed on this problem. And now this is the karmic fruit. I feel it in the body and the mind. This is what's left over. This is the natural, lawful fruit of the mind just having done whatever it just did for the last three minutes. And now it's like this. Okay. It's like instant feedback. It's hard to remain an unskillful human being when we're getting that instant feedback, when we're tracking present moment experience. It's just we will grow up. We will wake up. We'll get wiser unavoidably. Or you can remain really unskillful forever if we don't pay attention. It's like, haven't you 
we don't catch it in ourselves, but we catch it in our friends or people we know. It's like, how could you do that? It's like, it can be astounding. Like, what were you thinking? But the point is they weren't thinking. They weren't paying attention. They were on automatic pilot, doing what, what the, doing what they always do, getting the result they always get. Doing what they always do, getting the result they... But never connecting the dots. And the thing that's missing is this reflective awareness, what we call our practice, or mindful awareness. Being present, knowing that it matters, how the mind is relating, how the mind is receiving whatever's showing up in the moment, what the mind is doing with it, what, it's, what is it framing, or what meaning is it creating about what's showing up in the moment. Like around the election, we could be framing it as, we're all going to hell. <laughs> and then the, but the interesting question isn't whether that's metaphysically true or not. What's relevant is, what does that set in motion in my heart? And if I'm yelling it out to my friends, what is it setting in motion for them? And is it skillful or not? Right? Is, so this is the interesting thing about just generally how the Buddha taught. He wasn't interested in the ultimate truth or the metaphysical truth. Later traditions in Buddhism kind of spent more time about like, what does it all mean or what's the truth? But the Buddha was completely pragmatic. So in terms of how we're framing the moment, like whether it's the election or like how I see myself in this room at this time, like how I'm framing, how I, what story I'm telling about myself to myself, the only relevant thing is, well, what is that setting emotion? Is it setting emotion a constricted, heavy sense of being? Or is it setting emotion something that's lighter and freer and more capable of kindness and understanding? And to think about this, how many times today did we feel appropriately responsible for like, what our mind is doing. Because our habit is just to assume it's just doing what it does. You know, it's like, it doesn't, it's not really until we develop the practice, it doesn't feel right to realize that there's some play here. Like we can be, the mind can be showing up, relating to the moment, constructing meaning in the moment in different ways. But we're never going to change unless we begin to see that it matters. It's like another way to think of this is every moment there's a fork in the road and we're going to either go right or left, you know, towards what's more liberating and freeing and kind and useful in the world or what's destructive and constricting and heavy. And it can feel initially like the reason we don't go there is like, I don't want that responsibility. That just seems too intense. How can I be relaxed? And see, this is, the, this is the real error where we think, like hoping for the best or thinking it all, you know, these idealistic notions, it's going to all work out in the end. We just, but we, we're saying that because we don't want the responsibility of looking at our experience in a moment-to-moment -moment way and taking responsibility. And I'll, I'll talk more about this next week, but the interesting thing is it does initially feel 
a little uh, intense, I guess is a good word, to realize that in every moment, in a sense, the mind, the way the mind is relating, is shaping the future for ourselves and for the whole world. Right? We're, we're basically all co-authoring our existence. Right? I mean, mostly we're authoring our own future, but it leaks over. It affects. Everyone's affecting everybody else. This is what, in Buddhism, we mean by interdependence, the interdependent nature of existence. So it feels initially intense to realize it matters. Like they say in some traditions in Buddhism, everything rests on the tip of motivation or intention. But the thing is, the more we study that truth as it is in our own experience, like it matters and we practice showing up with humility and learning how to hold that responsibility, the more we realize that clarity, instead of like, I think I've got to avoid making mistakes, actually that fear of making a mistake makes us more prone to mistakes, right? Like if you're a parent, imagine some of you I know are parents. I've, I haven't been a parent, but imagine a parent with a newborn, right? First time, maybe they weren't the older, you know, a sibling with younger siblings, so they don't really... And then having this strong idea, I got to do it right. I mean, you could, you're going to raise a really neurotic kid. <laughs> and you're going to age quickly, right? In that situation, like if you're really thinking that you're not going to make any mistakes, the kid's never going to bump their head, you know, you're going to do everything just right, they're never tantrum or scream because you'll be anticipating their needs just the right way. Things can get really tight. Probably we've all been around people like that, you know, that really didn't want to make mistakes. But the opposite is also can be very destructive, thinking it doesn't matter. <coughs> so the interesting thing is, initially it feels intense to take responsibility, but the more we study what that is to be in the present moment and, that, and see the conditional unfolding, that it matters how we're relating, the more we realize, we actually see how the system of our heart and mind is self-correcting. And so the best way to show up is not to tell ourselves what to do, but to be intimate. That's it. It's not about having a plan, like how I'm going to be the best Mark Nunberg I can be. It's about being intimate and letting go. Because if we're intimate and we let go, we're going to learn from being skillful and we're going to learn from being unskillful. And the system will naturally gravitate toward being more and more skillful. Not even because I want to be skillful, but because it's the natural fruit of being intimate. So this really says something, and I'll, like I said, I'll go back into this next week in more detail, but I want to save some time for discussion tonight. But this really sh says something about the whole path. Because initially it feels like we're taking more and more responsibility. It feels very personal, like I want to be aware, I want to be intimate so that I can be more skillful. But the more we bring that sort of personal attitude of like I want to be aware, I'm going to be humble, I'm going to be open, I'm just going to see it as it is, the more we realize that to do that we have to relax. We have to relax, 
And we have to let go of being right and being skillful. To really be skillful, we have to let go of being skillful. I mean, imagine some of those places in your life where you really wanted to be skillful. You have to relax. You can't raise your infant and be fixated on being skillful. You have to relax. You can't be a lover and be fixated on being a good lover, right? There's, there's probably nothing worse than <laughs> being with you know, a partner that just like really wants to do it right. <laughs> Maybe later. <laughs> I got to go to work. So this is the beauty of the whole system of awakening, how it teases out self-drama, teases out self-centered business, right? Because it gets in the way of being skillful, showing up in an engaged, beautiful, loving, fearless way in our life, in all the situations in our lives. So initially, it's intense because there we are showing up, and all we're recognizing is it really matters. And early on, all we see is how we're falling short of being really clear, being really responsive. We see the first things we start to see in our practice is how many of our moments the mind is colored with some kind of fear or aversion or impatience or lust or greed or neediness or fuzziness, disconnection. And it breaks our heart because we know it's unskillful. But in that moment, the practice is letting, like we're just connecting the dots. Seeing that it's unskillful, seeing what it sets in motion is enough. That's all we have to do. Because being unskillful, it hurts. And that will make an impression on the heart. Basically something like, honey, don't do that again. That hurts, right? Not that it's like that in words, but that's what the heart receives, that very wise, compassionate, energetic impression. Honey, this isn't the way. You don't need to neurotically scold yourself or hate yourself. That's totally extra and, count- <laughs> and counter. Because just seeing in that moment, just seeing that what you said, what you did was unskillful is all that the system needs to take a step in the right direction. Because if it sees, if the wisdom in the mind sees that it's unskillful, then by definition it sees that it hurts. That's what unskillful means. It's a crunch in the energetic feeling in the heart, right? The heart feels squeezed when we recognize that something's off, not helpful, unskillful, unwholesome, it just means the heart hurts. And that's all we need. It's like when I squirt my cat with the bottle, water bottle when it's scratching on the couch, you know? It's like, oh yeah, scratch, get wet. Right? It's just, I'm told actually that that doesn't actually work with cats. They're not, somebody told me there's a book that says cats aren't smart enough to make the connection. They just think there's something wrong with you that you're squirting them. <laughs> I'm not really sure, but, but in this case it works because of the intimacy. The mind really, that's the whole point of being intimate or sensitive. The mind sees the correlation between thinking in this particular way, like in a negative way, and the heart getting crunched. Oh yeah, when I 
negative, the heart's crunched. When the heart's loving, there's space there. There's ease there. There's a sense of connection there. That's all the heart needs to sort of wake up and become a saint, basically. And, and then we've got to stick with it for a while, obviously. <laughs> but I'll, like I said, I'll pick this topic up for at least one more week, maybe even two more weeks. But we have 15 minutes. Be nice. I mean, there's always a lot of questions about karma. You might have some examples from your own life where you were able to observe cause and effect in a way and notice how just the awareness of it changed, how you were in situations, how the feedback loop works, questions, comments, ways where you're not learning your lessons, karmic lessons. Remember, you've got to point the mic right at your mouth like this, uh, just about an inch away. Yeah, please start us off. And if you don't mind, we do record on Sunday nights, but uh, please say your name if you'd like. Hi, my name is Brenda, and um, towards the end of 2016, going into 2017, I made an intention for myself that I really wanted to be more connected to everybody and everything. You know, I didn't put a stipulation on it. And then I also said I want to be more intentional about my thoughts, meaning if something negative came in, I wanted to reframe it to something positive so that I could um, feel more gratitude. <laughs> because I saw that as the path to gratitude. And so I was, I, I said all this, I, you know, made that my intention for the new year. And last, about a week and a half ago, so I've been really, in, you know, being aware of the mind and what the mind is bringing to me and the cause and effect of it. And last week I went to the grocery store and I was shopping and I found one item that I wanted and then found some other items and then realized, oh, they're out of the other things that I need. So I had, I found myself at another grocery store. <laughs> and I'm shopping and I'm looking for all the things and I'm still missing two things that I cannot make my recipe with and so I have to go to a third grocery store and by this time I'm, I'm getting anxious and I'm getting irritated and I'm thinking this is three grocery stores in the matter of an hour and a half getting in and out of them on a Sunday you know and I just simply said to myself oh, wait a minute, Brenda, you have a car that can get you to three different grocery stores. You have a job that can pay for things at three different grocery stores. And there are three different grocery stores. <laughs> and so immediately it changed from a moment of irritation to a moment of being grateful for those things. And I've been trying to practice this with every negative thought that comes to my way. I have a coworker who in meetings goes on and on and on and on and on. And I found myself getting irritated irritated with her. And at the last meeting, I thought, oh, but look at how helpful and, and kind she is to everybody. Every time you see her, she's so kind, and she asks about your children, and she remembers about your dog and what your dog's name is. And so I found myself appreciating her for those qualities. And so, and now I feel filled up and appreciative of so much more. I'm finding that that's my way towards gratitude. It's just finding the good in people or the good in situations. Yeah, thanks so much. These are really practical examples of what I've been talking about tonight. And you didn't mention this, but I'm sure it happened in the way Brenda described her experience. That movement between you know, starting to complain and shifting to gratitude, there was a moment where the wisdom in her mind saw the complaining or the irritation or whatever was there and saw its dysfunction, like it's not helping. Honey, this isn't helping. And then, then 
then the mind opens up and then the mind remembers the intention that you set, like to relate with gratitude. So the mind checked it out. Well, is there, how, how might the mind frame this experience in terms of appreciation or gratitude? Right? Not to assume that the meaning the mind is, has created is the only meaning that we can create. This is the thing. Is this, is what, this is the very essence of delusion. The mind creates meaning and then the, the mind, the deluded mind, mistakenly thinks that's the truth. No, it's just the meaning the mind created. And it could create meaning. And, I mean, we could create almost an infinite number of stories about what it is to be here tonight like this. Right? This is the best moment of my life. I mean, it could be any... So the question isn't what's the right meaning. It's what meaning is more skillful, more conducive to liberated states, easeful states of mind. Yeah, thanks, Brenda. Who would like to share next? Yeah, pass the mic over to Tom. My name's Tom. Um, I had three things happen to me today. This, this morning I, I um, was trying to put a light, on, a light up in the kitchen. And um, just getting all the all the equipment, uh, the light and the screwdrivers and all of this other stuff together, um, I was just having the worst time. I uh, I lost the screws, and then I realized I had to go to the, the hardware store. Similar story, but I um, I decided that I was really, really like going. It was driving me crazy to just get this what I would call a fairly simple thing done. That would have taken maybe 45 minutes, and, and uh, about an hour and a half later, I decided to stop. And so I just ended it and went downstairs and looked at my sign that I have on the way down uh, to my practice room. I'm a trumpet player, and Miles Davis said about, oh, he said many years ago, but I, have, I, f- I found it two years ago. He said, don't play what's there, play what's not there. And that has helped me to get through uh, many breaks in my trumpet playing and my life because I think it's the same thing wh- what we're talking about and after the trumpet um, after I went down and practiced and um, felt really much better forgot about that stupid light and and uh, went out to see my mom she's 95 and living in a nursing home and, and uh, the same thing happened with the same thing is with her it's like she's 95 she's failing she's She's tired a lot, but we sit uh, in in this favorite room of ours, and uh, we just look at what's there. And I used to ask her questions and all these things. I wanted her to to be healthy and this and that, and we I gave up on that. It just it's just what what she is, and so um, and what I am really. And we just have the best time. She said, "Start whistling those those old church songs." And I'll try to decide what the name of it is. <laughs> and we had the best time, you know. So uh, giving up on your expectations, I think, is yeah. my lesson. So. Yeah, thanks so much, Tom. Who'd like to go next? Thoughts about the talk tonight? Questions? Experiences from your life and practice that you want to share with the group? Yeah, please. Wait for the mic, though. Well, my name is Vanya, and so I have a question more than something that Mm -hmm. has happened. 
Um, I just spend a lot of my life in fear right now. And a lot of, and let's, hi, everyone, I'm crying. <laughs> and it's being recorded. And I told you my name. And I'm just wondering, how do we, how does one stop that fear imprint or when it just comes back again and again? Yeah. But remember, see, this is the thing about if something's showing up, we know it can't be other, right? There are causes that the fear is coming up over and over again. So the relevant question to ask ourselves is how to hold, how to relate to the fear that is showing up. So instead of wishing I were a different person who didn't have fear or defensiveness or irritation, you know, because we all have some personality disposition, all of us in the room, right? So whatever it is that shows up for us, instead of lamenting it or wishing it weren't that way, wisdom, this is a great line from one of my teachers, Saida Utejaniya, he's a Burmese Buddhist monk, and he said, he defined wisdom this way, he says, wisdom is always interested in causes. So, in this, the way that is interpreted in your situation, wisdom is interested what way to relate to the fear will be the cause for peace, for ease, or whatever you desire, aspire to in your life, being more loving, being fearless. So it's not why is the fear coming, but how to relate to the fear in a way that, in terms of karma, sets in motion fearlessness. So if you want to be fearless, you have to practice being fearless with the fear, right? Like you got to let it in. Oh, fear feels like this. Judging, it's not about judging the fear or resisting it or getting tight. It's really understanding it feels like this. It's like this. That's like when you think about people in really scary situations, the person who's practicing being fearless is the person who is acknowledging their fear. Like, I'm really afraid. You know, I don't want this to be this way. But, I, but I'm willing to acknowledge my fear. It's sort of paradoxical. That's, that's pretty fearless to acknowledge that you're afraid and, that it, and to be actually willing to touch the unpleasantness of the fear that's arising. There's a lot of courage in that. So that's, that's what you can do with that fear. Yeah, thanks for sharing that with us. We have time probably for one more person. Yeah, please. My name is Dara. I'll share a story from Saturday um, as you bring up fear. Um, I was on my way to the Women's March on Saturday morning with my little pink hat and being mindful on, on the way and driving down St. Anthony, Maine, I'm on my way to university. And I pulled up to a stop street, and there was a woman walking a pit bull and another woman walking a small dog. Um, And immediately out of the corner of my eye, I saw the posture of the pit bull and the alarm bells went off in my mind. And I made the turn around the corner, and I looked back, and the pit bull had gotten away from the woman who was handling it, and was after the dog, the woman with the puppy and the um, 
she was kind of turning around in a circle and backing up, trying to get back to the apartment building where she could get in. And I saw the dog knock her down into the stairwell and immediately threw my truck into park and jumped out of the car. And two other men jumped out as well. And we ran at the situation because that's what was called for. Um, and I guess I have experience with, with dangerous dogs and separating fighting dogs and that sort of thing. Um, but still, it was, it was really frightening. But I think in that moment, I just knew that the right thing to do was to go and, and help. And in the course of four of us trying to separate these dogs, it, it ended up requiring me to put my hand in the collar and turn it with all my force to try to cut his air off. And two of us were punching him, trying to get his jaws to release just a little bit so a man, another man could pry his jaws apart and we could get the puppy's head out of his mouth. And at the end of the day, we did it. Um, and got the woman inside. She was badly injured in her hand. Her, her puppy was injured. Got the police and the paramedics there. And long story short, um, it turned out okay. Injuries were, were not too traumatic. Um, stayed, offered her you know, assistance. She was just really trembling and crying and, and shaking. And basically, I said, you know, just hold on to my hand, um, got her calmed down, assessed the injuries of the dog, um, and I left and I went away. And throughout the march, I kept thinking about the fact that it was really a wonderful blessing to be able to have a peaceful march because so many of the people who had marched for civil rights, which we're so worried about protecting now, had been met with biting vicious police dogs and bludgeon sticks. And so that, that image was in my mind all day long. And I was also really traumatized by the fact that I had to hit the dog. Um, and after I thought about it um, more, I guess the, the thing that really was encouraging is that all the people that I was with during the day were taking a stand to say that we're going to be here to protect civil rights and human rights and choice and diversity and all of those other things. And it's going to take kindness and courage and also ferocity. And we're probably capable of that ferocity more than we imagine. I never imagined I would be in a situation where I had to exert as much force as I did. But I did it because it was what was needed and what was called for. So. That gives me a lot of hope. I feel hopeful now that there are enough people out here that are going to do the courageous and kind and ferocious thing if it's called for um, when civil rights and human rights are threatened. So, yeah. That's a really powerful story. And uh, the image of the mind being open, balanced, and the kind of response that can come out of the, the kind of skillful response that can flow out of that mind and your your story is a beautiful example of that. And the question is, even now, very much removed, but just hearing the story that you told, like how is our mind holding that? 
Like, can we, can, are we willing to live, are we willing to be open in a world where bad things happen, where people are being oppressed or being abused at times by our police, by other governmental, you know, systems, or, you know, just all the injustice, whether it's a dog on another dog or any other kind of injustice. And just to be, not to like, for someone to tell us what we're supposed to do, but just to be interested, like what did we do with that story? What did we do in our heart and mind and body with that story? You know, did, we, did the mind go to anger? People shouldn't have pit bulls. You know, did the mind sort of willing to feel the vulnerability, like, oh yeah, we are in a world where this sort of thing can happen. And, and to sort of feel that fierce, like you mentioned, I think that, or use the word ferocious, that like how the heart, there's a lot of power when we're not, when we're willing to be sensitive, it's really empowering to see that a response can show up. You might even remember times in your life where you've seen a lot of power, a lot of clarity, but it wasn't you planning, deciding to be clear or powerful. It just came out. It was really arising out of the moment. It was the appropriate response to the moment. We need to leave it here. It's 8.30. So just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Appreciate all the wonderful comments tonight. Just enough time to take one or two breaths together. envisioning being intimate in the swirling and imperfect messy world to really discover how to be more and more skillful unafraid courageous to let our heart break open with compassion to see what's beautiful and good to not just be obsessed with what's bad or negative, unskillful, so that we can really set emotion, this freedom from suffering in our hearts and in the world. So may this be so. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website www.commongroundmeditation.org Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.